As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. The designer called me one day and said, what is this thing called? And I said, I don't know. It's sort of a voter activation network. So I let the client know that I wanted to call it voter activation network. And they said, wow, the van, we love that. So that was the birth of the van, which is still a term I think we use quite a bit in politics today. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Mark Sullivan was the founder of the Voter Activation Network, or the van side of NGP Van. He was in some ways an unlikely pioneer, but one who has left a long and positive legacy in progressive political technology. NGP Van is now a sizable company. It is the leading provider of web-based software tools for campaigning to Democrats and their allies, and Mark's work was integral in putting that all together. The development of Van helps explain why the progressive political technology landscape is what it is. Mark and I had a great conversation about his path to founder, the lessons he learned growing a successful business, what he's done with himself upon stepping back from the business, and many other matters. So after a quick word from our sponsor, I hope you'll take the time to listen to my interview with Mark Sullivan, founder of Van. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Mark. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Well, I guess starting at the beginning, I, I, I'm from Michigan. I grew up on a farm in Michigan, actually, and went to college in Ann Arbor and then went to graduate school in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I studied government and then pretty much found myself moving to Washington, D.C. and getting involved in political campaigns, which is, I guess, maybe at some level where my heart always was. Was your uh, family in Michigan political? Not especially, no, a little bit. I had an uncle who ran for judge and served as a judge for some time. And so I got a little bit of political campaign experience out of that as a kid. Ann Arbor, that's the University of Michigan. What did you study there? I double majored in political science and Russian language and literature. A cool combination. Why both? I loved languages. I took French in high school and I loved it. And when I was headed off to college, I wanted to continue studying French, but I also wanted to take on a different one. A friend of my parents said, hey, you should study Russian. And I thought, I could do that. And I just sort of did. And I was sort of interested in the Cold War and all that. So it, it just, it, it sort of became a big part of my life through college. I really was in, into Russian and Eastern European things. And I still kind of do love that stuff. Since you're the founder of a political software company, I'm just curious, did you take any computer science in college? Not a thing. And in fact, I think it's not a coincidence that I eventually got into that stuff and liked it and that I like languages, that there is, you know, there's a relationship there. No, I, in college, I, I really had no interest in studying it per se. I did have a Mac computer, the original Mac computer, which I was very into, but I never really thought about studying 
computer language per se yet. You said you went to grad school in Cambridge, which was the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, right? That's right. Why a public policy degree? Well, what happened was I my intention was to continue studying this Russian stuff that I was really into. And I applied to several graduate schools, especially a couple that were really focused on that. I would have told you at the time, my first choice was to go to Columbia, where they had one of the best kind of uh, Soviet studies programs. But I also applied to the Kennedy School at Harvard, just because it was sort of closely related, and I thought I might as well take a shot. But something happened when I got the, the, the letter accepting me at the Kennedy School. I kind of thought, I just got into Harvard. How can I not go there? <laughs> and so, and so that was kind of the shift, really, from uh, from being into this Russian stuff, which I loved, to being in a more generic public policy school. That's a two year program. What kind of courses did you take? When I got there, I I thought I might do international stuff, but I sort of just took an interest in media related stuff. There was a a professor there named Marvin Kalb, who was just starting up a new program in studying media and public policy. I got into that. I wrote a master's thesis, which was a very cool project. I, in your, your thesis, you worked with a real-life client. My real-life client was a Pentagon official who wanted me and, and, and one of my classmates, we did it together, to do a study of how to handle press in combat zones. And somehow I found myself, this 22-year-old or whatever I was, spending all kinds of time inside the Pentagon interviewing these top brass and all the reporters who cover the Pentagon and cover war and trying to help them devise a new policy for handling the press in combat zones. Kind of crazy. Yeah. Did you happen to meet anyone in that program with long-term life importance? I have a feeling you know that I did. <laughs> yes. Uh, so one of my classmates is Jim St. George, who is the uh, person I married. Uh, we've been together for now 33 years since then. He'll come back into the story because we ended up running the software company together for a while. So you said you went on to D.C. and and got into the world of campaigns. You know, after you get a degree in public policy, D.C. is just kind of the logical place to go. And Jim actually landed a job first. So that was kind of our anchor. Uh, he got a job in working for a labor union doing doing policy work. And I went down and it took me a couple of years till I actually got a job that was not pretty shabby. And then I ended up working on a presidential campaign of a, of a guy named Tom Harkin from Iowa. What was that and how did that happen? So George H.W. Bush was president. At the beginning of his presidency, we thought we would never be able to take him out because he was sort of popular for the Iraq war. There was a senator from Iowa, Tom Harkin, who was running and doing a good job of making George Bush look sort of vulnerable. And I got excited about his campaign and first volunteered on the campaign and eventually got a full-time job. As that race progressed, more candidates got in. And of course, Bill Clinton ended up being the winner of that one and went on to become president. What was it about Harkin that you liked? I felt like he was somebody who was aggressively telling the truth. You had this popular president, popular because of a, a war, who otherwise was, really wasn't that effective. And Tom Harkin was just doing a great job out there, kind of pounding away at him and, and, and talking about real people's issues and income inequality. and To me, he was a very strong liberal, sort of what you would call now on the progressive wing of the party. Yeah, he was. And he was sort of unapologetic about it. And that's what would appeal to me as somebody who was, I, I felt, you know, telling the real truth. And, you know, I suppose this was before it became really, really popular to be to be on the progressive wing of the party. Um, and of course, you know, we ended up going with sort of the safer route, which was Bill Clinton, who was the, you know, kind of the conservative Southern guy. I, I know that you get involved in Iowa politics, but I don't know the route there. Yeah, I, the route was by going 
constantly back in and out of, of Senator Harkin's world. So after that campaign, I, I had a few different jobs. And down the road, his chief of staff called me one day and basically asked if I would come back and work on one of the Senate races. He, he had been my, my direct supervisor on that, that presidential race. So a few years later, I went back and helped run his 1996 Senate re-election race. I, I was the research director on that campaign. Did you have any exposure to the field campaign and how that ran? A little bit. Senator Harkin was was really a guy who believed in field and in organizing and and getting volunteers out there, knocking into, on doors and, and, and calling voters. Sort of at the very end of the campaign, when everything else was said and done, everybody was thrown out into the field. So I got a little taste of that at the end, and it was a very messy process. There's 2 million voters in Iowa. It was very hard to organize information about those 2 million voters and figure out who should go talk to who. And there was a company that would send the campaign note cards for, I don't remember how many, probably a couple hundred thousand target voters. And, and, and there was this incredibly chaotic process of sorting these note cards looking at maps to put them in walking order and then having people go out and walk and talk to the voters and try to keep track of who already voted and who didn't. And it was a very messy process. The, the field operation at that time was a very, very low tech. And that's kind of the world that you later enter. Yeah. So what happens is about four years later, as, as Senator Harkin is looking at another tough re-election campaign, he usually had tough ones, People I had worked with previously asked me to start helping them think about how to fix the field operation. I, by that time, already had a little bit of an inclination toward using data-driven solutions for stuff where people didn't traditionally do that. My research operation in 96 was highly organized using kind of database technology that I sort of had studied up and, and, and learned the question was, can we use technology to make this field operation actually work right? Why were they coming to you for that kind of question? Well, f- frankly, because my old boss knew that I could sort of take a problem and figure out a good technology solution to it. What did you do then? Well, I played a funny role for a little while because what I was first asked to do was to go out to Iowa and help with a process for identifying a vendor who should build an internet-based voter file system. So I went and I was sort of on the committee of people. I was representing both Senator Harkin and Vilsack, who I had also done some work for. I was their representative on this committee reviewing proposals that have been submitted by vendors. And I saw problems with a lot of them, or there's just a lot of problems with all the proposals. And so what happened was Senator Harkin's chief of staff and one of Governor Vilsack's key people started asking me, well, why couldn't you just do this? And my answer was, well, there's a million reasons why I can't do it. Number one, I don't know anything about programming on the internet. Two, I don't know anything about Palm Pilots. They wanted to use Palm Pilots to like sort of make the door-to-door operation more efficient. I don't know anything about any of that. When basically at the end of the day, they told me, well, you better just figure it out then. <laughs> and so somehow I ended up running into somebody who had a little bit of experience programming and this crazy internet thing. And I decided we should team up and submit a proposal. And we ended up doing that and we ended up getting the proposal So I was kind of like the Dick Cheney who was on the committee to pick somebody and decided that I myself was the best person after all. Yeah. And somehow you worked out to actually be. To actually be the best person at it? Yeah, I think so. Well, it worked out um, and I was good at it and I enjoyed it. So we sort of ended up starting this company called Voter Activation Network. And we, we did this project for the Iowa Democratic Party where for the first time ever, Every Democratic candidate in Iowa was sharing the same database distributed by the internet, and they also were running around door-to-door with Palm Pilots 
some of your listeners probably don't even know what those are, but that was advanced, very advanced technology at that time to use a Palm Pilot to go door to door and have your your voter list in it and tap in the responses to survey questions and all. Sort of precursor to the smartphone. It was actually called Minivan because the company was Voter Activation Network, which everyone called Van. And it was the original Minivan, which of course today is done on smartphones. Why did you call it Voter Activation Network? The name came about very quickly. We had hired a graphic designer to sort of just design the, the you know, the, the look of this website we were building. And the, the designer called me one day and said, what is this thing called? And I said, what thing? The, the thing you're building, what should it say at the top? What's the name of it? And I said, well, it's our client is the Iowa Democratic Party. It should say Iowa Democratic Party on it. And he said, no, yeah, yeah, I can say Iowa Democratic Party, but what's the thing? It's the Iowa Democratic Party's what? And I said, I, I don't know. I, it's sort of a voter activation network. And that was the birth of Van. And and he said, oh, yeah, I, you, you're not really going to be able to change it because I'm going to embed this in the graphics. I like, so I let the client know that I wanted to call it voter activation network. And they said, wow, the Van, we love that. And... <laughs> And they asked if we could get the URL drivethevan.com for this website, and we, and we did. And, and so, that, so that was the birth of the van, which is still a term I think we use quite a bit in politics today, even though the products don't even necessarily have that name. What did it do? What did it enable users to actually do at that time? So now what you have is you have the field staff, not just the Senate race, but also the governor's race and all of the local races all using sharing a database. So because they're all sharing a database, anytime one candidate enters a piece of information about a voter, whether it's an address correction or that they're you know, a really good Democrat or that they love Governor Vilsack or don't, everybody's sharing that data. So it, it, you had really great live data sharing between a lot of campaigns. And then it also facilitated two other key things, this Palm Pilot door-to-door operation, which really made door knocking vastly more efficient because at the end of the day, they would go door-to-door, they would survey people, they would tap their answers into the Palm Pilot, and then they'd come home and hot sync the Palm Pilot and all that data got poured straight into the database and was you know accessible right away. And then the last thing we did was we facilitated a very sophisticated absentee ballot monitoring process where we really had live data and, you know, in in very close to real time for the first time ever about exactly who has voted exactly when. And, and, you know, so we're pulling all those people, the people who have voted out of our universes, we're monitoring. We know how many Democrats versus Republicans have already voted. And we just had a handle on what was happening in our race that our opponents didn't have because they didn't have any of this technology. Is that where the report that was nicknamed the drug came from? (laughs) Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. So, uh, I had a, a report that I would kind of compile from the data every day that would show county by county exactly how many registered Democrats had voted up until that day and how many independents and how many Republicans had voted. And you could see that more Democrats were, were voting every day and this gap kept getting bigger and bigger. And, and the, the senior campaign people I all, all called it the drug because they could not wait until the, the the hour of the day when they received that report. So how did the Iowa Democrats that you were working for do in 2002? Uh, Well, 2002 was not a great election nationally, but in Iowa, we bucked that trend and we reelected, you know, very progressive Senator Harkin and and we reelected Governor Vilsack. You had looked at some other applications, other companies that were trying to do similar things in other states. What was the state of the competition around that time with other voter file interface companies that were doing similar things to what you were doing? There were a few companies doing this. And so, you know, it's not like we were the first people who conceived of any of it, but we were the first people, I think, who put all the parts together and did it right there were probably, it seems like there were about three companies doing some variants of this, but 
like I said, I, I don't think anybody had really made it work well yet. It seems to me like the next step in kind of building the van as a company is is preparation for 2004. And 2004 has that America coming together year with a real attempt to sort of nationalize the get out the vote work. What was your role in that and how did Van do that cycle? Coming out of, of O2, a lot of people saw what we had done in Iowa and were very excited about it. The 2004 election I think 10 other state parties had hired us to do the same thing. So we, so we had 11 state parties where we were building this big coordinated shared data system. And then there was this outside group called America Coming Together, which you just mentioned, ACT, that wanted to run big field operations in battleground states to help from outside the party structure. They were putting together a program in something like 13 states and they asked us to do some 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 trial work with them and we we did a, a, a trial project in Philadelphia they actually also brought in a variety of vendors to kind of compete with with projects here and there but at the end of the day we were the only one who's ones who really could make it function correctly and we we ended up doing the vast majority of of that contract as well if you were working for 11 states, you must have been starting to actually build a, a real company. What was it like internally? Well, internally, it felt like chaos all the time. So originally, I, I you know started the Iowa Project with a business partner. Uh, his name is Steve Adler. He's uh, still a friend today. So after Iowa, I guess we, we started hiring a few people. And I think we must have had about half, there must have been a half a dozen of us through 2004, six or seven maybe, which I'm sure never felt adequate for the the amount of work that was coming at us. But here you are sort of have moved into the role of a startup entrepreneur in political technology. What made you a good fit for that? What makes me a good fit for it is that I like problem solving. I, I like data. I liked writing code at the beginning. You know, I was, I was writing code and that was in some ways the most fun part. I'd be in Iowa on the ground and there's a, a problem that someone wants solved and I could throw together, you know, a new component of the software in a day or two to solve another problem. I love that kind of problem solving. The part of it that I, that I'm not good at or don't care for is is really kind of kind of running the business part end of it. Like I did not like having to hire people and deal with the paperwork around that and the the management of it very much. Take me forward one more cycle. You get used pretty widely through 2004. Nationally, that's the year that the Dean campaign shows how valuable technology can be. He goes to the DNC to be the party chair. He brings in one of the guys from Blue State Digital, a firm that came out of their operation to be the chief technology officer at the, the DNC starting in like 2005. Where did you find yourself and how did you how did things move forward through that cycle? Well, first of all, business-wise, after 2004, I ended up buying out my business partner and my husband, Jim, quit his day job and, 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 and came to help me run the company. So as to the last point, I get to stay super focused on the product and building the product, which I love. And now I've got someone that I trust and who's really good at managing to manage the, the business operation of, of the company. So that's good. In terms of the national scene, the, the folks you just mentioned continued to sort of kind of foster innovation and competition and they basically encouraged the state parties, you know, more and more of the state parties to do what, what our clients were doing, regardless of whom they hired. And so you had four or five companies that were sort of winning contracts from state party after state party. So going into 2006, our company is doing this for 22 of the state parties. And then there's several other companies, each of which have, you know, three or four or five of the parties. 
you know, you get to almost like kind of like quasi national state. Um, but then after that, going into 2008, especially given that you have a presidential candidate, Barack Obama. Before we leave 2006, 2006, you're doing about half the country. How did it go in that cycle? I was in an adjacent business doing fundraising and compliance. And what I was hearing was, you know, other vendors were struggling with big states. And this had happened in 2004 also, that, you know, with the comparatively giant load around election day, that other applications were not staying up. What was your perspective on that? That's pretty much what happened. We made a decision early on as, as, you know, as we started to grow that we were going to invest heavily in infrastructure. I was very aware that this thing was getting really big and that any kind of technical failings would be sort of disastrous. We had a couple million dollars worth of hardware, you know, relatively early on in this process. And I don't think our competitors were doing that. I don't know exactly what they did right and wrong, but, but, but they were having, you know, load failures. And, and there was a, you know, a, a case where the Ohio Democratic Party, their, their systems really just broke down because they couldn't handle the vast amount of pressure on these systems, you know, as you got into the final weeks of the campaign. This is, of course, the era before the cloud, before Amazon Web Services and uh, other people with giant billion dollar budgets handling your backend resources. It was, you had to kind of put together the hardware on your own. How did you guys do that? We had good, a good team of people who included a couple of really good hardware people. And we maintained bank. We just kept building out banks and banks of, of servers. I, I don't know how, how the competitors did it, but I do know that we, at that point, were relying entirely on our own, you know, our own infrastructure that, that we owned. How did 2006 go as an election, you know, on the get out the vote side on top of your van software? So it was a good year for Democrats. It was a great year to show off the software. The software was looking really good to become the basis of what the Democratic Party would rely on in 2008 at that point. So it's a very successful year for us. The company did really well. Our clients did well. And so what happens then is now you've got the, the DNC as is kind of ready to like make a cut in, in terms of we need in 2008 in the presidential election, we need to have a national program where everybody's on the same page. How did they do that? Did they send out like a request for proposals? Did you have to bid on it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so they, yeah, they put out an RFP. I try to remember how many people bid on it, maybe half a dozen or something. I assume like leverage and sage. I, yes. I, I forgot the names of these things now. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't, I don't remember who the others were now, but from the beginning, we were pretty confident that we would win this contract. We're working with, you know, half the state parties already. Our, our systems are just vastly more, more, sound and sophisticated, you know, we really went into it as, as the front runners. Um, but it was, a, you know, it was a long involved process. And at the end, we did win the, the, the contract. You know, it was a great time. It was a very exciting time because you had a presidential campaign coming together that was, I mean, the nominee was a community organizer. Here's somebody who really believed in, in organizing. And, you know, we, we got to be the company that would build, you know, the foundation for doing that. So when the DNC did sign a 50-state contract with you, what did Van look like as a company? We must have had 40 employees or something like that by that time. Sounds about right. Yeah, probably about the same as your company at the time. Yeah, I think we were running a kind of parallel in size in adjacent areas right? that, that whole right. time. And, and starting to wonder, I think, if we were going to run into long-term competition a little. Right. That's right. Because at this time, we're, we, we become just, you know, absolutely the dominant player in the, the field operations market. And you had become the absolute dominant player in the, in the fundraising and compliance market. And 
as we each sort of needed to expand a little bit, we were we, we probably were starting to bump into each other. I remember that one of the things that influenced me was one of your competitors tried to be both on the field and on the fundraising side. And I would try to steer states away from them to you because you were were not trying to do at the time fundraising compliance. And it, it seemed a lot smarter to be friends with a growing van than, than to take you on. Yeah. And likewise, you guys were obviously the best and we're always going to be the best at what you did. And, and, and sort of, yeah, we did the sort of the same thing. A very a, a memorable moment of that in my mind was when in 2006, one of the contracts we really wanted to win was the Ohio Democratic Party. They were back then seen as, you know, the ultimate swing state. And we bid on a contract, a, a proposal that they had put out. But this other company had gone in and said, you know what? Our product will do everything. It will do all your field and your fundraising in the same database. I went to Columbus and met with the director of the party. And he said, um, one of the things I really want is I want the fundraising in the, in the field to be in one database. Well, we were at a place where the technology wasn't, wasn't there yet. Today, that stuff is, is incredibly well coordinated. Back then, it wasn't. And I'm not the type of person who is going to tell the guy I can do something that I don't think we can do well. And I encourage them, likewise, that you really want the best field operation and you're going to get that from us. And you really want to have the best fundraising stuff. You probably should go to NGP for that. Well, I knew, I could just tell in the room, I knew I had lost that contract. We did lose the contract. And of course, two years later, we, we, we won it after you know it had all kind of fallen apart. So... 2008, good year for Democrats. Obama wins. You guys have the whole country. How did that all sort out for you? We used to tell our staff, you're never going to have it this good again. This is an amazing time. It was such an exciting year. One of the things that made it so great was the real no drama of the Obama campaign. They were an amazing campaign to work with. Like President Obama, it was always just kind of cool and competent. And so it was it was fun working with them. It was stressful, but it was fun. It was exciting. The energy of that campaign from beginning to end was, it was just a magical time. They had other tech vendors, including Blue State Digital. Did you end up working with them on things that went across sort of front end website connecting to back end voter file? Yeah, yeah. There was a there was a lot of now that we've got you know a good national program for you know field and good tools for various things. That was when we, we really did start in earnest working with the campaigns to try to figure out well, now how do you tie all this together. The other really big innovation on the Obama campaign was the way they used their website, which is built by Blue State Digital and did fundraising and organizing through the website. And, you know, an enormous task was to figure out how to tie all that together. At the end of the day, we did it with a lot of duct tape and, you know, and, and chicken wire. What's your account of the story as we moved our two companies to merge? Well, you brought it up first, I think. Uh, Pretty sure I um, did, yeah. <laughs> and my first reaction was, I don't know, I, I, we've got a good thing going here. I, I feel like that would be complicated, and I, I'm not sure what it would accomplish. I, I think we sort of didn't really talk about it too much more for about a year or so. And I think what happened uh, maybe maybe a year later is – we started getting a lot of pressure, you know, to sort of expand into a couple of adjacent markets, especially building websites and, and, you know, that are sort of incorporated with the rest of the field program. We started feeling like, like for our company to grow, we needed to do more sales, which your company was very good at. And we had just never done. We just had, we had no experience doing it. All we could do was keep up with the business that was coming to us. But Suddenly, I started recognizing there's new needs that we're not the best at, 
you guys were good at those things. You were well way ahead of us in the in, in that sort of building integrated websites part. And I think maybe then I reached out to you and said, maybe we should talk about this. Well, I think we had such entirely different business models. So we sold directly one by one to campaigns and other organizations. So we had to build a sales operation. You were working generally with a whole state party. And when you got a state party, you had essentially picked up all the candidates in the state at once. So you didn't really need more than you or you and Jim doing sales, right? That's right. That's right. And, and, and we, you know, sort of almost felt contempt for, you know, like the idea of going out and trying to sell this stuff. Like, no, we're, you know, we're the best. You, you come to us. Right. Um, you know, once we really maxed out on that market, we real we needed to we needed to sort of grow in different directions and and suddenly we realized they required some of what you guys were very good at doing which was you know getting the product out there and and, and finding customers i mean i think another part of that was the support side we worked with the campaigns we had that individual relationship with campaigns from the beginning we had to listen to them individually, hear their troubles, make changes to our software, hold their hands about it, build a support operation. And you were kind of intermediated by state parties or state voter file directors or whatever, and had a less need for that sort of piece of the puzzle. Well, I wouldn't say we had less need for it. We had a, you know, a, a reasonable um, customer service operation. We were dealing with fewer people Totally. And what was happening is, yes, you're right. The state party staff would sort of funnel all the, you know, the because we had a huge base of users. I mean, we had just, you know, you know, literally tens of thousands of users. And then we had these state parties kind of funneling the, the request for service to us so that we responded directly to fewer people at the end of the day, even though we had a giant base of users. Our customer service operations were just different, but they were both big. I've always, you know, wondered about some of the the way that was set up, where you know the state party is the client, and in in many of the states, or if not most of them, they then resell the van to candidates, and sometimes at pricing that van doesn't control which on the upside supports the state party and on the downside, the party decides what sort of candidates can be in or out. And it seems like the consequences of that, the way that you structured that still remain to some extent. Well, at the beginning, it was a great structure because one, it it made it things manageable from our perspective. And two, it empowered our clients who are the state parties. You know, state parties are organizations that, you know, people don't always respect. These are, you know, people who work hard and get no credit. And all of a sudden, state parties had something of great value to distribute to the candidates. And the state parties, you know, it enhanced their importance. And it worked really well for the parties that actually you know, I, I think it was a, it was a great model from their perspective, and it worked for us in terms of a service perspective. Now, later on, this starts to create problems, and it creates problems once we've got a united company, NGP Van, and we want to add on a lot more services. We you know we're we're constantly building new services, new capabilities for these systems, and they're services that it would work better to sell directly to the clients. And instead we've kind of built this trap where the state party is deciding who can or can't use, you know, new phone bank services and new web building services. And yeah, it it created a a bit of a mess. I'm still curious about like how you viewed that merger, because that's a big change in your life to go from sort of running your own shop completely making all the decisions to a much more collaborative situation. How was it for you? Yeah, well, and that's why we were, you know, obviously wary at first. It took some convincing. But at the end of the day, it worked extremely well. I mean, you know, we would say we think we're, you know, we're building something that's bigger than the sum of the parts. And I think that's very much true. That's very much what happened at the end of the day. The most important thing that we got from that merger 
in my mind, is we got a CEO who was a real CEO, and that's Stu Trevelyan, who was who you had hired as the CEO of NGP Software a few years before that. And we were ready for that. At the end of the day, it wasn't hard for us to kind of relinquish control. Stu as CEO is just incredibly competent, um, had a vision of taking the company to a much bigger place, building a much bigger company than I even could have imagined. And it was, it was just the right time for that. Yeah, I think it was the right time for that for both of us. What different skill set do you think Stu brought to it than we, you and I had? He just know, knows a lot about growing a business and preparing it to have much greater value. So it's something that I, you know, I think that I never thought in those terms, but he had sort of a vision of how would you build this into a company that's really, you know, that's worth a lot more and things that I just didn't think about. I, you know, usually was busy thinking about how to solve a problem right now or how to get more Democrats elected. I mean, I kind of thought of you as the, as the head of product. And I think to some degree, I thought of myself like that, at least through around 2007, when I went to work for Hillary. And I think that's a great role in any software company. Was that hard to relinquish over time? When you start a little company, as you know, and it's just you or you and one or two other people, you play every single role. And 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 what happens over time as that company grows is you shed roles and you have, you know, you, you bring in a person who kind of takes over database stuff and a person who takes over hardware and infrastructure. And then those things become departments. What I found is I, you know, kept giving away parts of my job until the, the point where... I almost didn't really feel like I really needed to do anything anymore. And I, you know, the last couple of years I spent in the company before I really decided to step away, I was just doing very big picture thinking and stuff, as, as, as I imagine you were doing the last few years. I used to remember almost enjoying the times of crisis more because I felt needed as the company built out on my side. I had people often who were better at doing parts of it than I had been. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and, and it felt good. I, I never felt like it was a bad thing that I was giving up some of my responsibilities. It always felt like a good thing. Like there's there's not enough of me to go around in the first place. Also, I'm hiring people who are, you know, much younger than I am and much, much more skilled. And this is a, you know, this is a business where standards change really fast and technology changes really fast. And so, you know, we just kept building up a younger and younger team of people who were better than us. You know, by the time I really sort of stepped back, I was ready. <laughs> I was ready to, and, and, and uh, you know, I was very excited to hand over everything to, to other people. Tell me about that stepping back. So you made a considered decision. You didn't need to come to the office anymore. You decided you know, over time went through several steps, which led to both you and Jim leaving and, and traveling the world. What was that like? There was a point when we both real, we simply realized that we had the capability because the company had been successful. We were just in a position where we really, we could just go pursue a different dream completely. We decided to just, just kind of take a chance and do it. You know, I, I'm, incredibly passionate about politics and always have been still am obsessively. Um, but I, I have another passion and that's travel. I've always been a travelaholic and we just decided we, we had an amazing team. They didn't need us anymore. <laughs> let's, let's go travel the world. And we actually sold everything we own and we took off and uh, spent five years and eight months with two suitcases roaming the world. Mark, what were the highlights? If I were going to roam the world for, I don't think I could handle it for five years and eight months, but for a while, where would you advise a couple places to go? Well, we basically spent the summers in, in Europe and the winters in, in warm places like Southeast Asia or Africa or South America. And, you know, where do you go? You know, we found ourselves spending our time way disproportionately in great food countries. So, you know, the top of the list, we go back over and over to 
Italy and Greece and Vietnam and and Thailand. You know, we spent a lot of time around the Mediterranean, where, where the best food in the world is. It doesn't sound like a terrible lifestyle. I, you know, I've I've been kind of wa- wanting to ask you about working with and now more playing with Jim. Like, you've been married. You said together thirty three years. That is not easy to have a partnership like that. What's the secret? It's not for everybody. I'm I'm I'm, I'm sure of that. You know, I don't know. I we just it just worked for us. We spent, I guess we spent about eight or 10 years with our desks six feet apart in that Somerville office. We just were in the same place. You know, it's, it's great when the, when your business partner is the person you, you, know, you just trust completely. And then the six years of traveling, we spent you know, all of our time in little hotel rooms together. So we just get along well. That's all I can say. My brother and sister and I hiked the Inca Trail with the two of you. I think it was around 2009. I definitely noticed that you two went off together at, you know, to have your lunch together. There was something working about that relationship that you don't see in a lot of marriages. It was really nice to see. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I, that's, it's, it's always been an easy relationship. I'm, I'm lucky. You came back after the, the five years plus of traveling. What's been on your plate since? Well, a, a few new things. You know, we actually started to get a little tired of traveling. We uh, we found ourselves being kind of feeling kind of blasé. We'd arrive in a new place and just kind of we'd rather sit by the pool and go look at sights. And suddenly we started kind of longing for some old things that I hadn't missed cooking the whole time. I never missed cooking, even though I like to cook. And all of a sudden we started finding ourselves saying, I bet I can make this. You know, something. And, and, and so we just decided we kind of wanted to settle again. And I've always been fascinated by New York City. I've always wanted to live here, never have. We sort of decided, let's, let's go live in New York City. We've seen a lot of the world and this is, we've never seen anything more exciting than New York, I don't think. So we've settled here and we've occupied a lot of our time the last almost two years with acquiring and renovating a a home, a, a condo that we'll move into in about three weeks. I'm learning to play piano. I've never had any musical skills whatsoever, but there's something about the interest in languages and computer languages and music that all sort of goes together. So I'm exploring the last one of those. I, I I've really love living in this city. And, 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 and the first year before COVID, we really took advantage of all the cultural offerings. We, you know, we've enjoyed theater and um, music and everything that this amazing city offers. It's a whole, it's a whole different life. One thing that you didn't mention is that before acquiring this condo, there was a chance where NGP Van brought in new capital and bought out the remaining shares that you and I had and others, and that let you buy. You know, it's not an ordinary condo and ordinary renovation. Tell me a little more about that. You and and, and Jim and I all re- retained our ownership shares well into you know our, our you know mostly retirements. Most of the six years we were traveling, almost six years we were traveling, we were still among the principal owners of NGP Van. But Stu really nurtured that company and, and got it to a place where it was very very appealing to investors and essentially, you know, in when was it August of about, about two years ago? Yeah. 2018, I think. Yeah. They brought in new capital and, and, and bought us out. You know, I say, if you live in New York, you either want to have resources or, or be a student and not need them. It gave us opportunity to just have a pretty exciting life here. We shopped around and we found a, uh, big spectacular loft space that was desperate for a renovation and which is what we wanted and so we've got to spend two years planning you know what will be the perfect place for us when it's done just before election day it's sometimes the dream of entrepreneurs to create that kind of situation i don't think it was ever my dream it wasn't wasn't ours either. Yeah, I mean, I, it was more my surprise than anything else, and and adapting to possibility. But but I think for some people, it's a real challenge after you have an organizing principle for your life 
which is a job or your company, to find what to do with your time. It doesn't sound like that's been much of a struggle for you, but how do you go about choosing what to do when that isn't the thing you have to choose to do? Well, let me come back to that. But first of all, let me just say that you and I have got really lucky because both of us pursued in our whole careers things that we loved and were meaningful and we enjoyed doing and felt important. And, you know, neither of us, I don't think, set out to build a big company, but we did things that we loved and and, and and got very lucky because we got well compensated, you know, incredibly well compensated as well. So, you know, amazing, amazing luck. We both give a lot of credit to Stu Trevelyan who came in and said, there's, you know, there's more here than you guys realize. There's a, there's a, a real company here that real investors would be really, really interested in and, 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 and help turn it into that. When I, you know, quit the day-to-day job and went and traveled, well, I never looked back on bit. I mean, I just, you know, threw myself into the new thing and, you know, made the absolute best of it uh, for all that time. Then got tired of that and just found something new. And here, here we are settled. I've been so focused on this, this whole renovation process in New York City. Renovating a condo is a very involved and not always easy process. That's taken up a lot of my time in the last couple of years, learning piano, doing all this cultural stuff it's it's been you know it's been very fulfilling and, and you know i don't miss anything that, that came before it now when we finally get this condo done in a couple of weeks maybe there'll be a new gap that has to get filled and i don't i don't know how i'll fill that yet but i'll, I'll find something for i guess three and a half years now been talking to lots of entrepreneurs in the political space who you know and it's so much busier it's just a larger thing than it was when we were getting going what advice would you give, you know, obviously they live in a different world, but what, what advice would you give to people who are working hard to, to grow a piece of the progressive ecosystem based on your experience? Well, you know, I, I think in, to a large degree, our success was derived from really caring about your clients. And I think, you know, the number one advice to any entrepreneur is, is, Take good care of your clients, you know, do the best you possibly can do for, for, for them. And, you know, that's how you get a reputation. That's a, a genuine path, a great path to success. And then there are companies who don't operate that way. That's alien to me, but I think that's how, how you should do it. What about in terms of career? Are you happy with the course that things took for you? Or do you feel like you left anything on the table? Oh my gosh, no, I feel like the luckiest person. Like I did things that I love and got handsomely rewarded for it. And now I'm watching a new generation of people do this stuff. So no, I didn't I didn't miss anything. You have seen, you know, a real change in politics, however, over the last four years with Trump. How is that to watch from the sidelines a bit? I'm glad I'm not immersed in it the way I used to be. I mean, I watch it so much. I pay so much attention to it obsessively and it's painful to watch. It's painful to see our country sort of just deteriorate like this. I sort of feel like I, gosh, I'm glad I did it during the Obama years instead of this, even though, my God, I am incredibly thankful for the huge number of young people who are doing this work now and who are organizing and who are you know, building these tools and, and doing everything we need to do. Um, I'm you know, sort of glad I'm not the one doing it, but I'm sure thankful for the people who are. I feel the same way. Mark, is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have about your history in the space? And there probably is, but I'm, I'm not thinking of it yet. <laughs> uh, you're a good interviewer, Nathaniel. Thanks, Mark. I enjoy it. And I, I think that, you know, people don't all understand the role that you played. Like a lot of times I'll interview somebody who is a a new entrepreneur in the space. And at the end of the interview, they'll say, you know, thank you for uh, making the van. (laughs) I'll be like, well, (laughs) 
Wait, they give you credit for the van? <laughs> well, you know, they, they they hear that I was a founder of NGP Van, so they assume van. So I think it's important that people know that uh, that you did the van side, but it's not it's not just you, right? That that labor of putting that together is is a community project as oh, it was absolutely, on the absolutely absolutely and you know it, and and it it came from you know the 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 field workers on the ground you know i just spent you know in the early years of all the time i was working i spent a lot of time in the field i loved being around the people who were doing the organizing who were knocking on the doors and making the phone calls and and hearing from them how stuff should work. I mean, you know, all the ideas really, they percolated up from, from the bottom. They percolated up from the users in the field. A, a long time ago, um, back in, sheesh, in the late 80s or something like that, I wrote a little article about what campaign management ought to look like and that it ought to be on a map and you ought to have all the data in the world behind it and you ought to be able to sort of see all of the action happening in a political geography in one place. Did you have sort of in the back of your mind some long-term vision that's sort of as yet unrealized that was the horizon for you? No, I, I never really I never really came at it from that angle at all. My path in doing this was really responding to immediate problems in front of me. Now, I think for a lot of the time, I had a vision of where the product should go and what, what the product should look like in a year or in two years. I was more responding to, like, I, I want to fix broken stuff. You also even had a notion of starting a company and that you'd like the idea of starting a company. To me, the company aspect was like an unpleasant thing, <laughs> you know, in a way, even though I sort of enjoyed it once it got going. But but um, no, yeah, yeah, you had a, a vision in that way. And for me, no, for me, I, I really just, I enjoyed solving problems. Yeah, I, I know that feeling for the first couple of years when I was doing it and I was the only employee and I was also writing the code, it, it was extremely fun how responsive you could be. You sort of mentioned that earlier. Like I could go to a fundraiser and they could say, oh, it would be really good if I could do this extra thing, you go home and add it and send it out to them. It was so much more frustrating for me later when it involved many layers of bureaucracy and trying to get it into a pipeline of development. Oh my God, yes, yes, exactly. Oh my God, the good old days when I could make a new feature in two hours and put it out there. And then, you know, years later, of course, I have an amazing team of people and we'd be in a meeting and there's a discussion of a new feature that we're trying to build. And, you know, one of the product managers would say, you know, we should be able to have that out in six or seven weeks. I'm like, I, I was like, six or seven weeks? I used to do this in an hour. <laughs> I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, and, and I would say this thing to people with companies in the two to 15 person range that like that is a fun time and a responsive time and a time when you can pivot and change and where you're like more like a family and to enjoy that phase because it might be the funnest or the most fun part all along the way. That is absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and, and later on, you know, being in a big company, because I'm, I'm not, I'm not that kind of, I'm not a company guy. I don't think really. Do you ever go back and visit? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're really still very close to quite a few people on the NGP fan team. You know, we just drop a line every now and then, catch up and find out what's going on. It's it's really exciting watching what they're doing. You know, the technology just keeps evolving. It all gets so much more sophisticated. You know, all the time. I'm very still very proud of that company and, and super proud of their, of their ongoing success. And, it's, and they're growing like crazy. Yep. Lots of acquisitions. It's fun to be sort of a, an outside observer now. Yeah, it is fun to be an outside observer. I still feel like it's my baby. I still feel like I, I, I still feel an ownership stake, even though I literally don't own any of it. I, I delight in their continued successes. I mean, they have my initials and they have the end of your last name. So, you know, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, we're, we're in it for good. <laughs> well, we'll see if they change that. Anyway, Mark, it has been wonderful to catch up. 
I always love talking to you, and I'm so proud of what you've done in democratic technology and uh, what we were able to do together to some extent. Yeah, it's been a great pleasure. Anything else you want to say? I'm feeling optimistic right now about November 3rd. It's been terrifying to watch it unfold, but I like the direction things are going right now. And my God, thank you to every person who's part of it right now. All the people who are out there doing the hard work. I am with you there. That was Mark Sullivan of NGP Van. He's at markandjim.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. I'd appreciate you subscribing to the podcast and leaving comments on iTunes and elsewhere and sharing this with friends. And if you have suggestions for people I should interview, please email me at nperlman at gmail.com.